the book of Philippians. Let's get our Bibles out. Let's, uh, let's, let's move ahead. Don't worry about me. I am fine. Maybe. <laughs> Just kidding. The book of Philippians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi that he founded on his first missionary journey into mainland Europe. Philippi has a, a very long and extended history that goes way back in prominence to like the 400s, 450 BC. Back then, the Macedonians, which are a kind of a Greek-ish people, from up north, they came down to conquer a bunch of Greek territory, and they were led by Philip II, Philip from Macedon. And Philip of Macedon conquered this city because of its gold and its silver mines. And when he fortified it, he did what? He named it after himself. He changed the name to Philippi. And then, not long after that, he dies. And his son, who becomes rather prominent only because he basically conquered the entire known world and he changed all the cultures and mixed them all up. His name was Alexander. We know him as Alexander the Great. He scrambles up the whole world and, and then he dies pretty early. So after Philip and after Alexander, Philippi itself was a city that held a lot of prominence in its day until about 150 and nobody knows why. It was just kind of stagnant at that point. And then after, right at that point, after the assassination of Julius Caesar in 44 BC, about 100 years before this book was written, do you remember the guy who assassinated Caesar? Brutus, et tu, Brute. All right? He assassinates Julius Caesar, and then he runs away. After he kills him, they, they, they gather their forces and, and square off in a great, big, giant Roman civil war that takes place, the, the culmination of it takes place right outside Philippi. And so, in the result of this battle, the winners turn out to be the supporters of Julius Caesar, Octavian and um, Mark Antony. And so, Octavian becomes the first emperor of Rome. He changes his name to Caesar Augustus, the Caesar Augustus of, you know, Luke 2 fame that gets the, the birth story and narrative rolling uh, with his census. And so Brutus and his forces are defeated outside of Philippi, and Brutus decides, let's just end this, he takes his own life. And so to signal to the world that we really don't need to fight anymore, that this is all settled and, we're, and we're, the people they, that have done the wrong stuff, they've been punished, and the control of the government is back where it should be, Caesar, or Octavian, just lets his troops quit. Those that are in Philippi, he says, we're done. You can go away. You did everything I asked you to do. Thanks a lot. Why don't you just take some land here? Why don't you just stay here in Philippi? And so that's what happens. They colonize this, this somewhat stagnant community of, of Philippi. So it's like Corinth. It has a lot of Greek history but it's now become a Roman colony. And so these soldiers, they get a stipend, they get, they're set for life because they helped Augustus secure the Roman Empire and the throne for himself. And so what does that mean? It means that these soldiers and their offspring, as they begin to have families, they are going to love Augustus forever. They're gonna be in debt to him, and they're gonna pass that love for Rome on to their children. So when Paul shows up in Acts chapter 16, 
He's coming to a very pro-Roman city. They're going to all be in, in this, this cult of the emperor. The emperor, the living God, you know, they're, they're going to worship him. They'll be devoted to him. He is basically the patron of Philippi. They exist at the emperor's good pleasure. And, and they don't want to mess with that. They don't, anything that comes along, you know, let's not mess with what's going on here. We have it really good. And so they love the throne. And yet Paul comes along and proclaims what? Jesus Christ is king which is a threatening message when, you know, Caesar is king and God. And so into that history comes the gospel. And you would think that there would not be very much of a positive reception to the gospel in a place like that. But you'd be wrong. In Acts 16, when Paul arrives in Philippi, he meets a businesswoman, he meets this slave girl who's demon-possessed, and he meets just a Joe Blowed blue-collar guy. And out of those relationships and experiences, a church is born. And even though Paul leaves right away, a church is founded. A church that over the next 10 years, he begins to love deeply. And this church in the Roman colony of Philippi actually thrives. And in the crucible of that very difficult cultural environment, it grows with all of that pressure of being in a pro-Roman colony. And so about 10 years later, Paul is, is older, he's sitting in a Roman prison, he's actually beginning just to reflect on his life. He doesn't know if this is the end of it or not. And so he's writing these letters while reflecting on his life, maybe wondering if this is the end for him. And then as he's sitting there in this prison, he gets an amazing gift. He receives this beautiful gift from the people of the church he founded way over in Greece. And Philippi delivered a gift to him with a guy whose name was Epaphroditus. And if we read between the lines, it was a tough trip. And he gets sick when he gets there. And, and everybody's quite concerned about him. But Paul is overwhelmed by their generosity. And he is so appreciative of being remembered by the people in this church. And he's so personally grateful to Epaphroditus that it looks like he just sits down out of joy and writes a letter. And that's the letter that we're studying in this series. Now, I've read this letter over and over and over and over again. You've read it throughout your life as well. It's short, it's simple, but I'm still struggling with it. Why? Because the more I read it, the more it looks to me like Paul just had a bunch of things he wanted to say, and he just puts them all together and writes it. Finding a structure to it is difficult. And the things that were born out of his heart of gratitude and, and a clarity that comes with perhaps facing the end of your life, he just has all these things he wants to say and he just throws them in. And they've given him this gift and he's really grateful for it. And he begins this letter with this extended greeting section. And he tells them how much he appreciates what his life has looked like in Christ. And whether he's got the opportunity ahead of him to go on and do more ministry, or whether it's the end of his life, he's just grateful for where he is. And from there, he doubles down on, on the concept of humility. And he raises up the example of the Savior in that famous hymn or song that we looked at the last, over the last couple of weeks. And he, he has this theme there 
that's, that we saw prominently in Matthew. And that is, you know, this is for everybody. All will bow. And Jesus and his kingdom is for everyone. And this section of, of Philippians is just kind of the rich, creamy meat of Christian theology. And it's about the Savior. So after he's done with that, where does he go? Well, he goes to our passage this morning. He's going to point out a couple of other examples of humility in Timothy and Epaphroditus. But before that, he has this paragraph that he includes. Let's read it. It's our text this morning. Philippians 2, starting in verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. The beautiful hymn about Jesus exchanging his glory for a human body, of deciding voluntarily not to use his divine attributes, how he obediently died on a cross and is now exalted. That's given us an example to follow. And so Paul, out of that, picks up this concept in this word, um, word obedience. And he urges the, the believers in Philippi to be more consistent in their obedience themselves. And he says that I'm, I'm explaining this theology so that you will be light and you will hold forth the word of life. And if that happens, then we're going to boast together because we're partners in all of this. It's a huge theme, the partnership that he shares with them in this letter. So how do we partner with the work God is doing? How did they partner with the work God was doing? How do we become this light and this life? How do we hold forth the word of life to the world around us? What does it really look like to live in, in the shadow of this amazing example of the Savior? Paul seems to say in this paragraph that it takes five commitments. Do you want to shine like a star in the night sky? Here's how you do it. Here's what it will take. Commitment number one, I will do my part. I will do my part. Verse 12, therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The first exhortation Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Well, has his theology changed? We thought salvation was by grace. And here he's saying, we've got to work it. Work it out. But I don't think his, his, his theology has changed. I think he means something different in this verse. It means that we need um, to be more consistent in our obedience, which is rooted in the rich truths he's just said. He might have said, therefore, since what I have just written is true about the Savior, don't just obey me. Don't just follow this preacher when he's with you, but follow Christ and his great example. He has given 
the, the putting of, of others' interests above yourself. That's what you're supposed to do. So don't be too dependent on me. Don't be so dependent on Paul, he says, even though we're partners. Because as we each imitate the humility, it's got to be the humility of Jesus. And when you do that, what happens? You accomplish your own salvation. We would probably use the word deliverance. They're experiencing persecution. They're experiencing trouble. This salvation is certainly not eternal salvation. So let's pull this apart. To work out, it really does mean to produce or to accomplish a state or a condition. It's what it means. It's the idea of achieving something. It's the idea of producing or accomplishing. Here, you're accomplishing your deliverance, your salvation. But Paul has to be writing about some sort of salvation or deliverance that they can accomplish even in the midst of the opposition that they're facing. It cannot be eternal salvation. So what is it? What's he thinking about? It seems to me in the context of the letter, Paul is encouraging them to not dishonor Christ. As you suffer, as you face difficulties, Live in such a way that whether you're living or you're dying, you will not dishonor the Savior. Chapter 1, verse 19, he writes, For I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance, not as eternal salvation. I'm going to be, I think I'm getting out of here, but I don't know. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way, what? Be ashamed. No matter what happens, I do not want to bring shame to the gospel. Verse 27 of chapter 1, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they'll be destroyed and that you'll be saved and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe but to suffer. Since you're going through the same struggle you saw I had and now hear that I still have. You want it, you, we're all suffering. Let's not dishonor Christ. Work out your faith so that you won't dishonor him. As partners in the gospel, do not let us dishonor the Savior. Am I willing to do my part that I might not dishonor him? Because this idea will radically change the way you view God's will. Because here is the great question we all face as believers. Am I willing to do the will of God with no strings attached? No matter what he calls. Because many of us put conditions on our obedience. I will obey if... You know, God will promise to keep me safe and healthy if he will guarantee us a good job, a happy family, no problems with our children, long life, good retirement. Let me say this clearly. The God of the Bible makes no such deals with his children. When Mary Jean first got sick, we had this conversation several times. She said, you know, people will come to me and they say, you know, you've served God for 30 years in Taiwan. You don't deserve this. And she was like, what do you mean I don't deserve this? 
God didn't, doesn't owe me anything. His will is his will, and I will submit to it. Because the call of Christ is always the same. Come, follow me, wherever he leads. And we are called to follow Christ and leave the other details in his hands. So the question is, are you willing to do God's will with no strings attached? Are you willing to do your part? That's how this passage starts. Number two, the second commitment is, I will depend on God. Verse 13 kind of is the balance to verse 12. He says, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. You got the perfect balance. We do our part. Why and how? Because God's done his part. He always makes the first move. He gives both the will and the ability to do what he commands. He changes our hearts. He makes us want to. And he provides the power to obey. One other observation, he intends to give us everything that we need, I think, in every situation so that we can do his will. He is at work within us to will and to desire and then to do it. Because often what we lack and conclude is that our problems are greater than our potential. And God says, no, that's not the case. Those constraints of our time or our energy or money or people they're given to us by God, and again and again, he puts us in a position that no matter what the circumstances are, I mean, we're really unable to do anything without his help. And so then he steps in and he helps us, because what God demands, he supplies. And that truth comes from where? It comes from the heart of the gospel. When God demanded full payment for sin, he supplied his son, whose death fully paid the debt that we owe. But that, doesn't, that truth doesn't apply only to our past experience of forgiveness. It applies to where we are now and what he's calling us to do. What he needs, what we need, he supplies. He's going to give us that strength to do what we need to do. So we ought to begin every day with all the energy that we have and say, I want to do your will today because you're gonna give me the strength and the energy and the motivation to do it. I'll do my part, I will depend on God. Number three, he asks us, I will not complain. <laughs> oh boy, we won't be here too long, right? Verse 14, do everything without grumbling or arguing. Grumbling's that, the concept of murmuring. It's a word that in, in the original, it kind of sounds like, like the English word hiss or hum, you know what it means just because when you say hiss, it's that kind of word. It's, it's muttering under your breath. But do we understand when we do that, we are complaining, we are attacking the sovereignty of God. Every time you complain about your circumstances, you're really saying, well, if I was God, I would do it differently. The complainer has forgotten the first rule of the spiritual life. He's God, I'm not. And one thing you learn if you spend any time in a place like Bombo, Uganda, they, their, their life is hard, but you don't hear very many complaints. Even from those facing persistent opposition, persistent struggles, because it's all a matter of focus. What are we looking at? If we focus on our problems, it's going to fill our minds with nothing else than, than how bad we've got it. 
and we're going to complain and mutter under our breath. But when we focus on God and his goodness, we begin to see our problems in the light of eternity. And we have a God who doesn't work on our timetable. Therefore, I, I, I shouldn't complain. Number four, fourth commitment, I will be different to make a difference. The heart of our text is, begins really in verse 15. He says, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. He uses three words really to describe how we should live. First is blameless, above reproach, so that no, no accusations can stick. Be blameless. He says be pure, have a high quality, be an unmixed alloy, be as pure as you can and, and, um, and so that what people see is what they get. And faultless, be fit to be offered to God like a lamb without spot or blemish. Be blameless and pure and faultless because we will make a difference in the world around us by living lives that are visibly, measurably, noticeably, obviously different from the way everybody else is living. We are different so that we can make a difference. And our values set us apart from the surrounding culture. Why is it so important that we're, we're straight arrows in our lifestyle? Because we live, he says, in a crooked and perverse generation. He quotes Deuteronomy 32.5. Some things haven't changed in a really long time. Crooked comes from the idea from which we get scoliosis, the curvature of the spine. Perverted is much stronger. It means crooked by choice. And some people are messed up because they don't know any better. Some people are messed up because they've chosen to be messed up. And our nation has embarked on a great social experiment in which we were overturning tradition and history and these days even biology. But what's the best apologetic? The best apologetic, I think, is for us to live a truly biblical lifestyle. That's going to mean we use marriage as a window in time through which people can get a glimpse of eternity. Marriage is an illustration of the relationship between Christ and his church, Ephesians 5. Paul isn't calling us on our marriages to be perfect, but he is calling us to show the world what a marriage designed by God is supposed to look like. And when we do, we model then the, the relationship between Christ and his church. We're not going to have perfect marriages because <laughs> there's two imperfect people in them. And so it's not going to happen. But by his grace, they can be blameless and pure. Because how do you show somebody their stick is crooked? You've got to put down a straight stick. And you can argue all day, well, mine's crooked. No, it's not. Yes, it is. Look at No, mine's not crooked. And you go back and forth. You're not going to get very far. But if we simply decide to quietly live out our faith, in the most beautiful way possible, starting with marriage. That's going to change the world. May we show the glories of Christ in a truly Christian home where husbands and wives love each other, 
where they lay down their lives for each other, where the children are raised to know and to love Jesus, where the home is marked by joy and freedom and commitment. That's how you change a neighborhood as they look inside your home. And if you can change a neighborhood, you can change a city. If you change a city, you can change a state. If you change a state, you can change a nation. If you change a nation, you can change the world. But not all at once and not by ourselves. Not without the movement of the Spirit of God, not without a ton of spiritual warfare, not without a great turning to God. But it can happen, and we all pray that it does. But the change we seek needs to start with us. And what happens when we begin to live like that, the world notices the difference. And what does Paul say? He says, then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. We'll shine like stars. And then we're intentionally making life decisions based on the word of God, firmly to the word of life. It's the image of the congregation shining its, its light in the world. It's the image of Daniel 12 where Daniel writes, those who are wise will shine the, like the brightness of the heavens and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Some have concluded, well, it's just an, it means evangelism. I'm not so sure he's got evangelistic activity. Because, because a light shining, the, it's, it's not just a light shining the gospel in the world. He speaks of this unblemished congregation being in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, which is the night sky. Stars don't illuminate the night sky. It's still black. They do just the opposite. They show how dark the sky really is. And just as stars stand out in contrast to the dark sky, so the unblemished church is to be in stark contrast to this perverted generation. It's not particularly about evangelism, but it is about being utterly different from the sinful society around us. And part of the difference we have with the world is the gospel that we proclaim but I don't think that's the emphasis of this image. Paul says that the people will see the way we live, they'll notice the difference, the light of Christ will be seen in us, and then they might ask us for the reason why we live that way, and we share with them the news. There is a quietness to our testimony, born out of how we choose to live, how we choose to follow Jesus, which leads to one final commitment. Number five, I will live for others. I will live for others. Verse 16, the last half. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. The commitment is, I will live for others. I'm gonna be partners with you, Paul, in this work of the ministry. 
Paul explains it with two phrases. First, he looks forward to boasting about the Philippians when Christ returns. He says, I will be able to boast on the day of Christ. He envisions the day when he stands before the Lord Jesus Christ and he gives an account of his ministry. And what's he going to tell Christ? He's going to tell him what all these Philippians did and how they served him in their own generation. And the success of their partnership in the gospel, it's going to bring God glory on that day. And the question we have to ask ourselves is this then, what are we going to boast about when we stand before Christ on that day? Your job? I don't think he cares. Your bank account, that new house, all the important people you knew, not sure those things are going to impress the Savior. And that day, the only thing that will matter is what kind of an impact you had on other people. Everything else will fade away. So are we choosing to live in such a way that we will be honored by the, man, the one man whose approval we really want to seek? The one who died and has obtained perfect righteousness for us? Or do we want to be honored by men? See, Paul was very, very motivated by the day of Christ. He talks about it a lot in his letters. And he clearly wants to have his boast ready for that day. And on that day, our actions will be evaluated, not to demonstrate that we're believers, but so that rewards for fruitful labor can be distributed by the king. Paul was motivated in his life and his ministry by the prospect of having Christ reward him for his faithful ministry on that day. It's that day that we're all waiting for. And second, Paul mentions being poured out like a drink offering on, on their behalf. It, it re refers to the Old Testament practice of pouring wine on top of a sacrifice, whether it's animal or grain, so that the heat of the fire immediately vaporizes the wine and turns it into this beautiful aroma. And as he builds them up in their faith, as he works toward drawing them to a more mature faith, it's like this drink offering is what he is. He's being poured out. And, he, and this offering infuses into this, this grain or, or the meat offering. And it disappears there. See, the humility of Christ. I'm being poured out for you. And he's saying, even if I end up losing my life for you, it won't matter as long as you live for Christ. And with that statement, he comes to the bottom line of their partnership together. Verse 18, so you too should be glad and rejoice with me. I wonder how many of us can truly say that it doesn't matter whether we live or we die as long as others follow Jesus. The people we know are more motivated to follow him. You see, Paul's view of death is so different from the normal way of viewing it. For Paul, the idea of being utterly poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of their faith is a cause for rejoicing. He wants his rejoicing to be mirrored in their rejoicing. He wants to draw them into this celebration of their partnership in the gospel and, and this boasting that it will eventually return all that praise to Jesus. 
My mind runs to Hebrews 11. That list of believers who suffered for their faith. It says others were tortured and refused to be released. Some faced jeers and floggings, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were sawn in two. They cut them in half. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. And then you have that wonderful phrase, the world was not worthy of them. Does it seem like too much? I think sometimes with our mentality it does. It seems that the price was too high to pay. But before you answer, remember what God did and the price he paid when he sent his son. Think of what it cost him to provide salvation for a human race who had turned completely against him. You see, God also buried his son on the mission field. And God is calling his followers to shine like stars in the sky. In some sense, the world has its own stars and God has his. May God help us to shine like stars so that others will see Jesus within us. Because too often it's easy just to make excuses about the way we live. May God forgive us for trying to make deals with him. May he bring us to the place where we will say, I am ready to do your will. No strings attached. Because his grace is free, but it is not cheap. May we be a shining example to those who have laid everything on the altar of sacrifice. May the world not be worthy of us. Father, we thank you this morning for your grace and your strength. We thank you for Paul as he just lays out his heart. I pray that we would think about this text this week. That it might within us, get us thinking about some big issues of our spiritual lives. That we might come to the place where we're really willing to, to do whatever you want us to do. To be poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of other people's faith. faith that we might be partners together in the work of the ministry. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>